Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, we've got a full program for you tonight uh, in our virtual studio, Stephen Nathan, uh, who is here regularly on a Tuesday night. And we've asked another of our uh, usual co-hosts, Pit Fulun, to join us. Pit has been answering questions from the Twitter community about the unbundling by ReCM uh, Caliber, which is a listed company of uh, the Mauritius operation Astoria. He'll be telling us more about that in a moment. Also at the top of the hour, we'll be chatting with Pete Mouton, Chief Executive of the PSG Group, one of the major investment holding groups in South Africa. At one time, when uh, Pete's father, Yanni, was running the business, it used to trade at a premium to its underlying assets. Today, it's trading at a 33% discount. Should we be buying? I'm sure Pete will help us to understand that better in a while. And then Ujala Satgur, the executive head of UCT Libraries, will be telling us exactly what the university has lost in this massive fire. But our top story tonight is the resignation of Daniel Minnele, uh, the chief executive of ABSA for only 16 months. Now, you might recall that the previous chief executive of ABSA, uh, Maria Ramos, also left rather unexpectedly. It'll be interesting to find out from Koki Koyman if he's got an inside track on what went down. But first, let's kick off the day with some massive news for Cape Town. And here's Jackie Cameron, our editor-at-large, with today's flash briefing. Amazon has announced that it will establish its South African headquarters in Cape Town. This is a project that has the potential to create a... Sorry, we missed the introduction there. Jackie, just start again, please. Amazon has announced that it will establish its South African headquarters in Cape Town. This is a project that has the potential to create up to 19,000 jobs, more than 5,000 during the construction phase alone, and it will also inject an estimated 4 billion rand into the local economy. The Democratic Alliance says this is welcome news following the devastation of COVID-19 lockdown rules on businesses. It also says that Amazon's decision highlights that the city of Cape Town is making progress in attracting foreign investors. ABSA CEO Daniel Minella is leaving the bank. With ABSA Group Chairman Wendy Lucas-Bull saying that a separation deal has been reached with Minella, a former Reserve Bank Deputy Governor, and ABSA's first black CEO. The reason given by Minella is that he was not in complete alignment with the board on critical issues such as strategy and culture. Jason Quinn, ABSA Group Financial Director, has been appointed as Interim Group CEO with immediate effect. Reflecting the surprise of investors at his sudden departure, ABSA was among the worst performers on the JSE on Tuesday, shedding just under 5% of its value. South Africa may soon have a Johannesburg-listed cryptocurrency ETF. My Broadband reports that Signia is set to apply to the Johannesburg Stock Exchange to list a Bitcoin ETF that tracks the price of the cryptocurrency and allows investors to buy into the digital currency without trading Bitcoin itself. Signia's latest Bitcoin ETF plan follows an unsuccessful attempt in 2017 to list the world's first cryptocurrency ETF on the JSE. Signia CEO David Houghton is quoted as saying, Unfortunately, at the last minute, the JSE decided not to proceed, citing a lack of a regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies as the reason. 
Signia's fresh move to list a cryptocurrency ETF follows the listing of crypto exchange Coinbase on the NASDAQ. Coinbase boasts a market capitalization of just under 90 billion US dollars. Bitcoin has nearly doubled since the beginning of the year to around 55,000 US dollars. And a cryptocurrency that was created as a joke exploded into plain view on Wall Street at the start of the week with a surge in Dogecoin sending its 2021 return above 8,100%. That's more than double the gains on the S&P 500, including dividends since 1988. In other developments in the cryptocurrency sector that indicate digital currencies are entering the mainstream, BizNews Premium Partner, the Wall Street Journal reports that a former top US banking regulator is set to join Binance, one of the world's biggest Bitcoin exchanges. For more in-depth analysis and news on cryptocurrencies, subscribe to BizNews Premium, which gives you full access to the Wall Street Journal and other specialist investment insights. As the number of COVID-19 deaths exceed 3 million and India reels from a deadly wave of cases, Tokyo plans to seek a state of emergency declaration in an effort to contain a surge in infections with the Olympics three months away. That's according to Bloomberg, which reports that just over 5 million people in sub-Saharan Africa have been vaccinated. This is a region with a population of about a billion Only about 18% of the doses available in Ivory Coast and about 20% in Zimbabwe have found their way into arms, says the news service. Already lagging behind the rest of the world in its inoculations, the wave of vaccine scepticism has been made worse by a lack of trust in local governments and misinformation on social media. Bloomberg says this threatens to put the continent even further behind the rest of the world. And that was your BizNews Flash Briefing. For more on those and the other top stories of the day, do go to biznewsradio.com. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. Thank you, Jackie. We just had to make sure that you knew it was Amazon that is going to be making a massive statement in Cape Town. You've got to wonder, Justin, we sit here in Johannesburg, in Santon, the richest square mile in Africa. I wonder how long we're going to hold that title for, because it seems that business is moving south. And here I am having relocated from Cape Town, Alec. Well, exactly, to come and see the, the, the action to in Joburg. To work for business. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we're going to have to relocate to your, uh, to your hometown it's one good with day. Me. I'm sure it is. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And here is the relocated Justin Ray Roberts. The JSE All Share Index took a beating today, down to 66,800. The highlights, or lack thereof, included British American tobacco decreasing by 7.7% to 530 rand a share after the Biden administration warned that the tobacco firms could be forced to reduce the nicotine content in their products to levels they deem non-addictive. Sassel was down 10 rand to 225 rand a share on the back of weaker oil prices. PSG fell 3.25% to 68 rand a share as the company released its year-end results with investors not flinching despite the sum of the parts calculation being over 100 rand a share. Brian Joffe's brainchild Long for Life bucked the trend on the day, surging 7.5% to 4 rand 20 after announcing an upbeat trading statement. Alec is a regular Sorbet Man customer, so Mr. Joffe can thank him for his contribution to the uptick in demand. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Brian? I hope you're listening carefully on that one. Hmm? Lastly, Dogecoin's market value now exceeds the market capitalization of all of South Africa's listed banks combined. That's a coin named after a dog. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 28 cents to the dollar, 
19 rand 91 cents to the sterling and 17 rand 20 cents to the euro. The gold is gold is flat at $1,774 an ounce. Brent crude is low at $66 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back a shade under 800k Bitcoin. And this market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. You're not far wrong about Sorbet. Uh, they've got a quite a nice uh, men's hairstylist opposite our new offices. When we move into our new offices, opposite uh, Ben Moore. You mean you've never been to Sorbet? I've never been to Sorbet personally. Uh, however, I am a big fan of the gin and tonic. So Fitch and Leeds has seen a big uptick from me um, with regards to demand. And I'm a big fan of their Feldskuns. Of course, uh, they, they rescued my life once. Stephen Nathan, nice to have you on the program. I was in Davos uh, and I had old, because uh, any time you wear snowshoes is when you go there. If, and every year I would go there and my snowshoes would come out of the cupboard. And one year they literally fell apart when you were in this place, which is just full of ice and snow. And uh, I was rescued by a pair of feltskuns, which worked much better than normal uh, snowshoes. So since then, I've become a, a huge fan of uh, what is a 50% owned Brian Joffe company today. Sounds good. Lucky you didn't have Crocs with you, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I think Crocs don't work too well in the snow. But, uh, Stephen, there's, there's a lot in the news there. We're going to bring Corky Coyman in in just a moment. But that resignation by ABSA's chief executive, Daniel Minele, um, taking nearly 5 billion rand off the market cap, perhaps because it was so unexpected. Before we ask Corky to give us the inside track, have you heard anything in particular on why this would have occurred? I haven't heard anything, Alec, but as you say, you know, really surprising. They delivered a set of results and he was applauded for, um, you know, delivering them well, given his short tenure. Um, you know, so he, he got quite a lot of praise on that uh, and trying to create some stability at, uh, at APSA. And it's very concerning because you would imagine that uh, before the board appoints a CEO of a major bank, you discuss strategy amongst you know other things, um, you know. So so you know it clearly shows that uh, there was a lack of communication or a lack of adequate planning by the board to find yourself in this position, particularly because I think it's the fourth or fourth CEO in about four years. You know, so there is a pattern there, and in a bank of this size, you need stability. Um, you know, clearly it's very difficult for APSA and all the banks, given you know given given the environment, but. Um, you know, just as a, as a side note, one of the things that I think the banks in South Africa need to uh, wake up to, the big four that certainly is very quickly, is technology. You know, and how do you, how do you adapt to this new kind of you know, technology-driven world and, you know, these new digital banks and others that are going to eat your lunch? Just out of interest, I went on the APSA website, and I couldn't find one person on the board with deep technology experience. And even when I looked at the executive management, I could not find the head of technology over there. So, you know, it's a bank that I think, um, you know, needs to prepare itself very well for the future and certainly, uh, you know, needs a strong CEO that is in alignment with the board. Wow, how things have changed. Uh, Corky Koyman, if you can come in here, uh, you'll remember Olivain Berger, Dr. Olivain Berger. He was, uh, when I worked there, he was a colleague who, who was head of technology. He was then poached by Standard Bank. Clearly, they don't have anyone of that caliber on the, uh, in the executive uh, that they used to have in the past. 
Yeah, no, quite correct. Alain was was uh, leading in terms of technology at that stage, and uh, although obviously that was a different era, we were we were exiting the Hogan era, <laughs> and uh, but Alain was his passion, and uh, yeah, and absolutely let him go. And he, yeah, and Standard Bank, well, in fact, Standard Bank also uh, poached the financial director, Simon Ridley, remember, from EBSA. You'd oh, wonder, you'd oh, wonder how many EBSA executives would be poached by Standard Bank today. Yeah, um, it's, 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 the whole thing is a bit worrying in terms of the sequence of events. Um, and, uh, but I think what we must bear in mind that, that post Maria, Maria Ramos's departure, the exec team did a lot of homework and, and, and really it was in depth stuff and brutal stuff, um, looking at themselves as, as, as a bank and saying what went wrong and where are we now? And, and they actually shared that with the investment community. And I've seldom seen a bank being so open about the loss of market share in almost every product. And that team started the turnaround strategy, which the bank is still delivering on. And as a team, I think they, they, they're obviously molded and, and, quite well and started working as a team. And so your problem was almost from the beginning when you when you get uh, an ex-central banker who's parachuted on top of that team, uh, that potentially there were going to be cl- uh, clashes. Yeah, uh, But I don't think Daniel was a Jose Mourinho where you knew the type of personality isn't going to work for long. <laughs> and uh, But, yeah, I... I I don't know what went wrong uh, and where they differ on the strategy. Um, you know, the closeness or the proximity of the announcements on the money market fund and, and his resignation um, makes one speculate, but, but you don't know. And, and then you know, the different announcements, the second one comes through, adds the transformation issue, which which he must have been aware of, and I'm sure he was briefed and was part of the discussions, um, but, but obviously that was an issue with him. But you, know, you don't find many um, black um, potential CEOs or potential CFOs or top executives in South Africa who've got experience in banking, and, and it's, a, it's a vital sector, um, and you can't just go and appoint anybody. So, yeah, the, the whole thing is a bit of a... A disappointment, um, and as Steve says, you know, um, one would think, and I'm sure they did. That the board did discuss the issues with him, and he must have met the team. And uh, yeah, but it's, but it's a pity. Just for context, when Maria Ramos left, it was a surprise. Then they appointed Rene van Veek, you recall, as a caretaker. And I remember meeting Rene, and it's exactly as you say: very open, very humble. A very honest man who had no delusions of grandeur. He was there for not even a year, and he was just keeping the seat warm until the new CEO could come along. So you would think what Stephen was saying a moment ago, if you've had a year to get into the market, to go and find somebody, to find the right person, you have to get the values right and you have to get the, uh, the communication right. And now 16 months later, the guy that you waited for a year and almost put your bank on hold for, has departed, and uh, the the it wasn't even the the previous FD who was this deputy CEO under Maria Ramos. It's not even him who's taking over as the new caretaker. It it really sounds like a a, a business in crisis. 
Yeah, there, there are two issues. There. Look, firstly, my wife always says I try and defend too many people. <laughs> so if I defend ABSA, yeah, <laughs> then, um, yeah, as I said, in, in the South African environment where there's so much emphasis on transformation, um, I suppose they were doing their best to try and find a black CEO. And Daniel actually fitted that. And, you know, his macroeconomic background uh, must have weighed heavily. But look, as these things always happen, with time it will come out as to where the clash was. Um, was it just simply him being theoretical and, and the exec being too pragmatic and saying this won't work? But... It must be very difficult in South Africa to find a CEO that meets all the requirements. But I do agree with Rene van Weyck. It's a surprise. Uh, the market started speculating during the day that Rene would then caretake again. And Jason gets a job. And by the way, Jason is, is, is very, very, very well qualified um, and, and could mostly take the CEO job permanently as well if he was off color. Um, but... We don't know why Renault wasn't given the chance again. Maybe he himself said, look, it, it was tough doing it for a year. I'm still enjoying the rest. I don't want to um, do it again. So we, we just don't have enough information there. But you've seen a lot of changes in a short period of time. Okay, so Jason Quinn, tell us a little about him. As you say, he he's going to be there for a while because ABSA takes their time in finding new CEOs. What should we know about this guy, and, and will he make any dramatic changes uh, to that company? Because it really is uh, it's struggling in just about every area that you look at. Yeah, I, I differ there in that it, it, it was struggling, and the valuation showed that. But under the, the strategy that was implemented, it was turning around. Uh, now, look, by the way, I was critical of the growing market shares so strongly uh, in the sense that we all know that banks that grow market share in a uh, tough environment often take on bad debts. And, you know, that could still prove to be the case in six, 12 months' time. But but management kept telling us, no, we know what we're doing. And, you know, it was it was just market share. We lost our clients that we weren't servicing properly. We changed our offering, et cetera, et cetera. So Jason, being there uh, for, for quite long and last five years as CFO, um, I don't think will change much. Um, so... Yeah, uh, being an accountant uh, is conservative and unlikely to change a lot of things. Being part of that team that that came up with the current strategy, um, you know, so I, I don't expect any change. The interesting thing is just coming back to you know, the EPSA, um asset management selling or closing the money market fund. We don't know who drove that, but I think that decision on the EPSA asset management to to, to look at that was most probably taken before Daniel came in. And maybe that is also one where, where he clashed with him and said, you know, it just doesn't make sense to sell that uh, or to, to look at that business. It's been rumored, you know, that that is they're looking at selling it. And maybe that is one of the areas where there was a clash as well. But, but Jason, I don't think will change much. Uh, I think he's been working with a team that uh, came with a new strategy. Corky Coyman is banking analyst at Denker Capital. Stephen, I'm I'm with Daniel Mamele this time uh, on this one. If he was the guy who said, "What are you crazy to be closing down our 85 billion rand money market fund?" 
if that's the reason for it, then maybe the other people who should have left the bank rather than him. Yes, Alex, it's always difficult to speculate when you're on the outside, um, but it certainly makes, uh, I mean, I haven't heard anyone say that it makes sense what APS is doing with their money market fund. You know, and if you look at banking, it's become, you know, um, it's very expensive to run a bank and with capital requirements increasing as regulators get more and more conservative, uh, just the cost of doing business as a bank keeps on rising. So, you know, what banks are trying to do is to move away from being capital intensive to being capital light and wealth management, asset management, if you can get it half right, is a fantastic business economically because it requires almost no capital. Your brand really is your capital because uh, it's third party money you're managing. So it's very high quality earnings. Uh, and if you've got an enormous retail customer base, surely you should be able to you know, sell uh, investment products into that base and diversify your earning stream. Uh, yet it seems like APSA haven't been able to build their wealth management business and sustain it. Uh, and uh, it seems as though they're talking about possibly exit, exiting that. So you know, there, there certainly are a lot of questions from the outside looking in that it would be nice for APSA to, to clarify to, to, to the market uh, and their customers. And just to remind you that when they closed the money market fund, we asked and asked and asked, and they refused to discuss it. And all they did was send us a press release. Pitfall Yun, in a different era, I remember you running or being very involved with, uh, with the financial services sector. Uh, when I have a look at APSA now, you had a, uh, the previous CEO who's now departed, who came from the Reserve Bank. So he didn't have any operational experience in banking. Now you have the caretaker, or possibly, as Corky says, maybe even the next CEO, who's a CA, who's a, who, who has had no operational experience. He's been in the financial, uh, he came in as a financial controller. He then was a CFO of the retail business, the retail banking business, then head of finance, and now he's the chief executive. So... It sounds to me, and before him, you had Maria Ramos, who also didn't have any operational experience in banking. So you've almost had a a, a succession now of non-bankers who are running a bank, which should be an advantage when you have a transformative uh, sector, as that is. But it's been exactly the opposite, it appears. Yeah, I guess so. Look, I I mean, I think both... Koki, who's a bank specialist, and Steve, uh, who you might not remember, was the number one bank analyst uh, a long time ago. Uh, probably know it much better than I do, uh, but you know it, it does from outside. It doesn't look like a good situation. But I think uh, Koki made an interesting point, uh, and that under pressure, I think the executive team of APSA came together and had started to turn the business around. You can start seeing it in the numbers. And I think they probably had coalesced into quite a strong unit. And when the board then parachuted the new CEO into that team, maybe the executive team and the CEO didn't gel and that led to fallout. Uh, So I think actually here, the board actually needs to take a good look at itself and uh, its decision-making process and its ability to gel the CEO with the rest of the executive team. And, and, and I think that's what they need to have a look at now going forward. But at the moment, it's not a great position to be in. It's interesting the point you make because it is the board that makes the decision and it is the board yep. that should be taking the responsibility. Yes. And in this case, it isn't. It's saying, well, okay, off he goes. We'll now replace him and presumably find someone else. 
Look, that's the external uh, messaging. Uh, internally, there might be a completely different dynamic happening as well. One shouldn't lo- lose sight of that. Have you reassessed or assessed the closure of the 85 billion rand money market fund? Do you think, as Corky suggested, that might have had something to do with uh, Daniel Manella's decision? Yeah. I think one, one can't uh, do anything else than link the two. Um, it's just the one surprising decision followed by another surprise. You know, it, it, it just looks as if they're linked somehow. And I think there's probably a lot more to this than what we can see from the outside as well. I'm sure we will get more as uh, time progresses. But Pete, from your side, you've been on Twitter answering questions uh, about your listed company or the company uh, RECM and Calibre. Uh, just before we go into that, because we're going to talk to uh, Pete Mouton in a little while, the chief executive of PSG. It's, a bit, it's quite a similar operation, RECM Calibre, to PSG in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, we aspire to, to achieve what PSG has been able to achieve over the past 20 years. Um, I think um, uh, Pete's father, Yanni, did a fantastic job and Peter's uh, picked up the baton and, and carried on. Um, but yeah, we're uh, Rack Racing and Calibre is an investment company. We hold some investments in operating businesses. Um, and what happened this week is we actually um, spun out a company called Astoria, which holds all our non-gaming assets and is a Mauritian domicile business, so that's now separately listed. And the recent caliber company now, its major asset is a business called Gold Rush, which is an alternative gaming company, uh, probably the biggest in the country at this point. Um, and uh, effectively what we've done is we've spun off Gold Rush to our shareholders. You spun off Gold Rush to your shareholders. Exactly, because what's left in the rack shareholder, if you're a rack shareholder on Friday, today you have one rack share and one Astoria share for every rack share, share you held last week. So in rack is Gold Rush. It's the, by far the dominant assets. 95% of the assets is Gold Rush. And Astoria, the Mauritian domiciled business, holds all our other assets. So are you going to change the name of rack as you call it, RECM and Calibre? <laughs> Not at this point. Not at this point. It's still, you know, um, we'll, we'll see where we go with this. Uh, I, I think the next step is to release the results of RAC, which should come out by the end of June. Um, we want to disclose more information on how Gold Rush is doing, but then we needed to get it audited and checked by the auditors. And it was just, uh, it created huge costs and, and time delays in getting the information out. So now we'll just run through our normal reporting process and we should be, we should be in a position to report on Rack and Gold Rush uh, by the end of uh, June this year, in a month or two's time. So Astoria is the um, Mauritian listed company. Yes. I see that Peter Armitage uh, from Anchor Capital used to be a director. Was this the business that he started over there? And how did yeah. you? Well, I know you got involved because they bought yeah. uh, they bought the assets that you spoke about for nearly twenty million dollars. Yeah. But why did you spot this one? And and what was the story there? So what happened with the story is uh, that's quite right. Uh, Anchor Capital listed a story in Mauritius and um, uh, and. Uh, Funded it, I think, with their client funds, and they started managing it as a portfolio investor in all sorts of other listed companies like Facebook and you know those sort of companies. And at one stage, started training a huge discount to net asset value, uh, and we started buying it up uh, and to the point 
where we achieved control. And then we unbundled, although we sold and unbundled the rest of the assets. So we just had the shell left and then we reversed all our own assets into that shell. Um, all our assets excluding Gold Rush. So Astoria now, or in other words, that Mauritian company is yes. being unbundled to the shareholders of Recium and Calibre, in other words, REC, as you call it. That's right. So, so presumably you, you are now going to be a shareholder of Astoria. That's correct. So as I said, on Friday, if you were a shareholder of REC, today you're a shareholder of REC and Astoria, both, both separately listed. Uh, REC in South Africa uh, on the main board, Astoria primary listing in Mauritius and the inward listing on the JC as well. Because I see in RAC there was is a certain Peter Gerard Fulun who was appointed on the seventeenth of January twenty twenty. That's you. That would be me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as Pit. So you're going to stay on the board. They're not going to. Astoria is yes. not going to lose you. You're going to continue. You're basically going to be running or be on the board of those two companies in future. That's two correct. Yes, companies. Sir. That's correct. So, 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 so our objective here was to crystallise Gold Rush for our shareholders because remember when we bought Gold Rush eight years ago, it was a startup business making losses. All it had was some licences. It needed capital to build out its casinos and its LPM operations and its sports betting operations, online gaming. So we provide the capital, we provide the guidance, and we provided a home for that company to grow up. And remember, uh, RAC has a control structure in place. So the reason we were able to buy into Gold Rush at that time is we could protect them from hostile takeovers while they were building up the business, which they've done over the past eight years, to the point where today they're in a Good cash flow position. They should be able to start paying out dividends shortly, and they can stand on their own two feet. And that's what we've achieved with that business. Before we talk to Pitt Mouton, the or the other Pitt, how does Astoria trade relative to its underlying value? As I, as I mentioned at the start of the show, PSG is now trading at a thirty-three percent discount to the sum of the parts. How is Astoria's uh, relative valuation by the markets? So Astoria's results came out yesterday at the net asset value at that point was six rand eighty and I think it's trading at three rand fifty, four rand run about there. So it's also trading at about a thirty to forty percent discount to NAV. Like most investment companies, um, these discounts are just too wide. Can you not then unbundle as uh, as Pit Maton has done with a I mean that was a huge unbundling of Capitech. Could you not unbundle your Afrimat shares, for instance? Well, we've just unbundled our biggest investment in Gold Rush. That's exactly what we've done. So we've just basically copied what PSG did and then bund- and unbundled Gold Rush, which is by far our biggest investment. Uh, so, so I think we've taken step one, and we'll take further steps to crystallize that value. Pete uh, Maton is with us now. Pete, lovely to have you on the program. And it's actually a, a, an interesting conversation to pick up from before we talk about the the, the details in your numbers. But uh, my my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts was listening to your presentation today and you had quite a lot to say about what unbundling or the disincentives now uh, that there are to unbundle. Just take us through that argument if you would because what you did with Capitec is so different to what Naspas is doing with Tencent uh, and, and it, uh, it, it would be interesting to see what shaped your view then and whether there would be more unbundlings coming. Um, so hi here, Alec, and hi everybody. Um, 
Yeah, well, well, quite clearly, um, the the tax legislation uh, made it quite easy to unbundle, and I, I really can't fathom why they went and changed the unbundling legislation. Uh, because nobody's going to unbundle if one plus one doesn't equal three at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, Treasury had this thing that they want to bring more people into the tax loop. But if you were not paying tax before the unbundling on the single investment, um, the tax man isn't worse off because now the person owns two shares that he doesn't pay tax on. Uh, what they have gone and done is made it slightly more difficult um, to unbundle. So if somebody owns more than 5% of your shares um, and they're not a tax-paying uh, entity and you unbundle, then you have to pay tax on their portion on behalf of all shareholders, which I think is inherently um, unfair, but that is now how the legislation is written. If it's a foreign holder, then it also triggers um, dividend withholding tax. So um, at any given moment to consider uh, unbundling, you truly have to do a deeper dive into your shareholding base. Um, so I'm afraid if I look at NASPERS, they've missed the boat so to say, because they would have huge number of foreign shareholders um, that might hold material stakes in the business. I've never looked at the shareholder register, but it, it could have um, inherent tax consequences. Remember, there are a number of reasons um, that investment holding companies do hold the assets, even though they are mature from an influence point of view, like um, Capitec, which we held on for a very long time. And you've got to remember my ability or PSG's ability to add value was minimal. Um, uh, it's a fantastic management team. But um, the holding um, did help us to build other businesses. So uh, you can, in theory, go and unbundle everything and here and there trigger a little bit of tax, but then um, your firepower is gone because you've got no capacity to raise debt. So on the face of it, everything might look a little bit more simple, but um, companies are living, breathing things, and so are investment holding companies at the end of the day. So, you know, sometimes I find it uh, in investor com uh, community and the media um, sometimes look at it a little bit um, simplistic and um, you have to understand there are other reasons why you might hold on to uh, the shares within your portfolio a little longer. No, there are lots, of, com say, lots of complexities, Pete. But, but before we go into, uh, into more detail, how is the health of, of Yanni, your father? Uh, it's, he's obviously got dementia and it's a uh, um, illness that um, progresses. So, um, still see him on a weekly basis. So COVID's been very tough um, because he is in a high risk um, category, but um, um, he's okay. He's just not coming to the office anymore every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, 
It was always nice to have him around. Well, it was it was lovely and, uh, for him to have been such a such an icon on the South African business scene for so long, and I'm sure many people send their very best wishes through you to him. Getting back to to when he was running, when he was in his prime, PSG often traded at a premium to its sum of the parts. Now that sounds quite crazy that you've got an investment holding company that trades for more than its liquidation value uh, because of the expectation that uh, there was always going to be another clever deal that it'd be done, be done like a JSE deal and, of course, Capitec and, and uh, Curo, and we know them all. At the moment, it's trading at a discount of 33% to the sum of the parts, which is, uh, I guess, from your perspective, uh, quite a challenge to try and close that gap. I think the the market will always uh, determine the level of discount at which one trades at, and uh, you've got very little influence uh, over that. Um, we only started truly publishing uh, the sum of it parts in its current format, um, I think, after I actually arrived. Um, um, at PSG. Uh, before that, it was maybe displayed slightly differently. So it's maybe a little bit um, um, difficult sometimes to, to to say we were always trading at a material or, or, or at a premium to um, the sum of the parts. I, I think you do go through periods where um, things are different, but there's definitely a headwind at the moment against um, investment holding companies. And, and I don't think the current tax legislation has helped it any, um, any bit going forward. We've, we've also um, seen a number of investment holding companies making um, some big errors. Um, I'm not going to mention them specifically. And it does, um, unfortunately, it does filter down to the rest of the investment holding companies because the one point that um, investors have always complained about is the fact that we um, hold permanent capital. And um, they don't really like it. You know, if you invest in a unit trust, you can enter and exit at market uh, as long as there's liquidity. But by and large, um, unit trust manage themselves that that's uh, available and private equity funds you invest for a 10-year period and then you get whatever returns the management have given to you but once you go a little bit down the rabbit hole of um oh well i've given some of these guys permanent capital and they haven't spent it wisely and now got to exit to a discount it's the problem sort of perpetuate on itself because you can always argue you can enter at a discount, but if you always got to exit at the discount, it's sort of, well, now we're all trading at discounts. So we can go out there and to a certain degree, we can buy back shares. We bought um, almost 500 million worth of shares back in the last uh, financial year, but you can't do it too aggressively because on that day or two where you go very aggressive, you just close the discount and then, as you step out of the market, the discount just opens up again. Um, so the, the, the sentiment really has to change towards investment holding companies and 
um, until it changes. But it does create the problem. Um, so one of the fundamental reasons of being listed um, is to be able to access the equity markets. And if you try to get a 30% discount, um, I don't think that's available to you at the end of the day. And you have just all the bad stuff from the JSE and you have none of the good stuff. Stephen Dathan's our guest co-host. I'm sure you, uh, you, you know Stephen well. Have you got any thoughts, Stephen, about PSG or something that you'd like, a question you'd like to pose to Pitt? Uh, no, I think that uh, Pitt's, uh, um, you know, his observation about the unit trust and private equity, I think, is really interesting because that was also on my mind, you know. And, you know, if you, you look at, you know, why do we invest? Why do people invest? You invest because, you know, you want to maximize your return over a time horizon. And I think what would be interesting if you took a 10-year time horizon and you took a lot of these, um, uh, you took PSG as an example and, and, and other investment holding companies and you looked at you know, the return they've given in terms of, of, of you have to look at a net asset value. You could probably look at both, share price and net asset value. But if you look at the return, I think the return is better than most of the investment trusts. If you look at the fees that investment trusts charge, I mean, the total expense ratio of a lot of these uh, funds is still sitting up to 2%. So you're anywhere between half and 2%. I don't know PSG's ratio, but I'm sure it's materially lower than that. Uh, and you're buying and you're buying in at NAV uh, versus an enormous discount. So, so you know, there's a structural challenge that investment trusts have. And if you look at private equity, I mean, what's interesting with private equity uh, is they always talk about, you know, one of the reasons that you that you sold private equity is because it's an uncorrelated asset. What does uncorrelated mean? It means that normally people say, well, when the stock market falls, the the price or the value of a private equity doesn't fall. And that's mainly because they don't mark to market the assets, not because the assets you know, operate in a different uh, in, a, in a different universe. So there's, you know, there, there certainly is a structural challenge that investment trusts have. And, and, and as Pitt says, I and mean, I can also remember back in the day uh, as an analyst where you would either, you know, you'd value a company and you'd put on some kind of controlled uh, ma- management premium because of the deals that we're going to do in the future. And I guess, you know, the challenge is, you know, the market is what it is. And you can't, as Pitt says, you can't influence the market, but it's kind of, you know, what do you do from here? And, um, you know, one of the challenges when you're running a private equity, or an investment holding company, or even a venture capital. What's interesting with a venture capital, if you look at the US, which is a great market, it's not comparable to South Africa because of the size and the opportunities. But typically in venture capital, they will make lots of investments. They make up to 100 investments in the knowledge that many of them aren't going to succeed. And your best performer normally generates more than everything else. So, you know, mm-hmm. failure rate is high. And I think in South Africa, you've got, you know, you haven't got as many opportunities and i guess you know the market is saying well you know how often can you get a capitech uh uh you know and what is going to follow there on so you know obviously what the market wants to know what you know everyone wants to know is is, is you know, how do you create value do you create value because you're going to you're going to grow the net asset value much faster than the overall market uh or you're going to unbundle you know s- some way um and i think that's a challenge i'm not sure it's been asked this you know well, many, it- many times and he's got a lot of their own money tied up in that well he's got a, it's a it's a, a all the family money is is uh presumably heavily invested here pit what is your answer to that question do, lightning doesn't strike twice nice pass isn't going to get another 10 cent it's uh it's it's asking a bit much of you to get another capi tech but what is your horizon and your ambition it's, um, firstly, I would just like to say I'd love to get another Capitec, but um, 
I think we've got to be honest with each other that Capiteco is the best business created in the last 20 years in South Africa. Um, and I agree with your sentiment on Nasperson. It was probably one of the greatest trades ever, and you can go and write a book about it. But you can't go out trying to achieve that again. I think you're just going to be horribly disappointed in yourself and your abilities. Um, but, but I do think... Um, you know, from about um, 2010, um, we've analyzed the remainder of the portfolio, <clears throat> excluding Capitec, that returned about 15%, and it hasn't been a great economic um, environment. I think GDP, if we exclude the 7% that we've come back, was about uh, just over a percent or 1.5% over that period, and the rest of the portfolio did 15%. Now, if you ask me if we can continue investing and delivering 15% returns for shareholders um, for the next 10 years, then we're going to be four times the size, because it's quite a nice, easy calculation. You get to double every five years if you grow at um, 15%. So we don't have to find um, absolute rock star investments of the likes of Capitec. Um, but we can aspire to it, and if we fall a little bit short and do 15%, uh, I think we at least will be uh, more than happy. But I, I, I do truly think um, it's going to get tougher before it gets better. I, I mean, we were all very hopeful when um, President Ramaphosa came in that he was going to make some structural changes. And... I don't know whether he was going to be able to do it because just as he was getting going and we had the Zondo Commission and everything, um, we had COVID. So I don't, I don't know. Hopefully he'll make the right changes and um, we can move forward from there because it's very, very difficult to build new businesses in a very constrained environment. I do think it's worthwhile to go back. Uh, you know, when Capitec um, started, um, it was in that golden period. I think between 2000 and from about 2002, 2003, till just before the financial crash, the GDP in South Africa actually grew by 5% per year. It's a significantly easier environment to grow because everybody is chasing revenue. It's not about cost cutting and competing on market share or trying to divvy up a market that everybody, you know, if you want to grow, you've got to go and take a slice from somebody else. They could build a business in an environment and look, I'm taking nothing away. They built a brilliant business, but all of the other banks were looking at their own growth environment and ignoring this upstart just because there was so much uh, business to do, where at this stage, everybody's looking at what everybody else is doing, and um, no, it's a little bit more difficult for people to try something alternative, because they know if it doesn't work, um, then perhaps they've wasted money or... or um, but if times are good, then people are more willing to try um, something different. 
So, I mean, those, those are just realities. I, 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 I do think we still got to try our best to be able to maximise the returns for shareholders. Pete, thank you, and thanks for your contribution tonight. It's uh, it's always lovely getting the insights and the wisdom from the PSG top guy, and uh, all the very best to you and your family as you go forward and in, in your search for yet another unicorn. I'm sure I'm sure there's one just around the side in Stellenbosch there somewhere. But good good talking. Good talking with okay. you, Pete. Thanks again. Bye bye then. Cheers. Bye. Bye. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Last night we had an interesting insert with Rob Hersoff, who's, uh, it seems like we, we're talking to Cape Town. It's, it's, it's what I was saying at the beginning of the program. Business has moved south. Alec, let's do it. Let's relocate. I'm all in. <laughs> well, I'm sure that Rob Hersoff would welcome us with, uh, with open arms, particularly if we were prepared to play Paddle. So now this entrepreneur has uh, brought a new sport to South Africa at the end of our conversation on non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible. Fungible tokens, which is something that I, I'm, I'm going on a crash course on because it has massive disruptive opportunities. I asked him where he was going and he said he was going off to, to play Paddle, which is his, uh, his new uh, investment in South Africa. At the end of this conversation, it's a very short little clip, uh, he also tells us about the Africa uh, gold mining SPAC that was listed on the New York Stock Exchange and has raised even more than the $350 million that he, uh, that he expected last time. Let's have a listen in. It is extraordinary, Rob. So you're disrupting this industry, but now you want to disrupt a game called Paddle. Tell us about that. Listen, Alec, your audience are going to be sick of me by now. They're going to get not another bad idea from this crazy dude. So I'm going to have to take time off from business for at least a week. So Paddle Tennis is the fastest growing sport in the world. It's spelled P-A-D-E-L, tennis, and it's from Argentina, Mexico, Spain, the Hispanic world. And I played my first game 20 years ago with a buddy when I was down at Valderrama. And, and it, it's just fantastically easy to play, hard to be good at. And it's almost like squash outside. It looks like a small tennis court, a third of the size, but it's got back walls. And if the good courts have got glass, perspex. And it's a doubles game, and it's fast as hell. It's easy to learn. It's difficult to be good at, and it's just such fun. It'll be an Olympic sport very soon, and we've launched Africa Paddle. We have the rights to Pan-Africa. Within the next three weeks, we'll have 10 courts built and operational in Cape Town, and we're going to spread out across South Africa and across Africa. And game number one, 5 o'clock today at the Rotunda in the Bay Hotel, Camps Bay. Who are you, play- who are you playing against? Philippe Schellegren, Swedish. Risto Silander, Swedish. Uh, there are a lot of Swedes that are in South Africa that have got behind this. And then they've dragged myself, Pierre Dupria of Berkenstantia, Craig Stanley, who, who's sadly taller and better looking than me. Uh, but I think his shorts are going to be a bit too tight. <laughs> and uh, uh, Hans Otterling, the great friend of mine, who's a, a principal at North Zone, the most successful venture investor outside of America, 12 unicorns. So it's a group of Africans, South Africans, and Swedes. I don't know who my partner's going to be, but I've self-appointed myself as the senior African paddle champion. 
Seeing as I've played no one yet, I'm the champion until <laughs> I've beaten. <laughs> Rob, before we let so, you go, uh, the SPAC, how's that developing? So we ended up raising $414 million, four and four. We were at 300, six times oversubscribed. We were disciplined, only took 360. We could have taken a lot more. And then the broker played the shoe. <laughs> Basically, they had an allocation. We're at $414 million. So the team's in place, Chris Chadwick. Uh, we've got a fantastic board. Uh, Brad Doig, Kusum Kalium, you probably know very well, Michael Rawlinson. We've identified, I think, nine great opportunities. We're in discussion with all of them, and that's about as much as I can give you. Pitfulion, how easy is it to raise $414 million or call it 6 billion rand on the JSE nowadays? Rob makes it look very easy, but it's, I think it's just about impossible unless you come with a capital or a 10 cent. It's very hard. But there he goes to, to America. He goes onto the New York Stock Exchange looking for $300 million. Next thing, he's ended up with 414 or 6 billion rand. It just shows you the way the business is going. You've got to, you've got to go offshore. Look, I mean, market conditions in the U.S. are very different. SPACs are quite popular at the moment. Um, it's fairly easy to raise money with SPACs. You just have to have a, a couple of good names behind and, and, and a fairly uh, okay-sounding plan, and it seems like you can raise money. Uh, it, it used to be like that in South Africa 10 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. Um, it just uh, dependent on the economic circumstances. And right here, it's... Uh, you know, investors locally all want to invest offshore. No one wants to invest here. So it's very hard to raise money on the local stock exchange. And until those conditions change, until we get some confidence back in the economy, until we get some growth back in the economy, it, it will remain very difficult to raise capital on the stock exchange. Well, let's hope that it's a little easier to help University of Cape Town get beyond the damage from the fires. We welcome now Ujala Satgo, who's the executive head of UCT Libraries. Jala, can you just give us some sense of how much damage the Cape Town fires have done to uh, your your domain, your, your to the libraries? Hi, Justin, and thank you for having me on your show. And we can certainly do with the slice of that $414 million. Um, so I'm going to put in a plug for it as well. Um, the, the Jagger Library at UCT Libraries has been completely gutted. And uh, we're looking presently at um, damage and destruction to to the building, the edifice. Um, collections have been completely destroyed and we are going to have to engage in a complete rebuild of this particular entity. Um, part of the destruction or rather part of the collections that we've lost are some very valuable collections as well. And at this point in time, based on my assessment and, and the technical teams assessment today, we are confronted with the added burden of um, water damage now to other collections on a lower basement level. And this is from the seepage uh, of all the water that was, um, that was used to douse the um, fire on Sunday. When are you likely to be able to move back in? 
Oh, no, we won't be able to use that building because it's completely devastated. Um, thankfully, though, it is just one of three buildings that make up the UCT library. So this is going to be a construction site for many, many months, if not a couple of years, because that's going to have to be reconstructed. Although the edifice is still <clears throat> intact, it's been completely gutted inside. So that building will not be able to be used. Ujala, I understand that the Jagger Library is no longer. What about the Chancellor Oppenheimer, the main library at the UCT campus? Uh, I saw the fire was extremely close to the Chancellor Oppenheimer, and I could only imagine that there's some very important literature, original literature in that library. Well, as I said, it's 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 a part of three buildings. And so the main library is intact. That hasn't been touched at all. And this is the due to the infrastructure that we had to prevent fires from spreading within the building. And that was, you know, the, the fire detection systems. We had the fire shutters, etc. that kicked in immediately. The alarms went off, etc. So that prevented the fire from extending into other parts of the library. Our main collections were housed in Jagger. Our general collections are housed in the main library. So there are huge distinctions between the collections that we have. And so we're now faced with having to assess the damage to our rare collections, our unique collections, and, you know, um, special collections that we, we are host to at UCT Libraries. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin? The JSE All Share Index took a beating today, down to 66,800. The highlights, or lack thereof, included British American Tobacco decreasing by 7.7% to 530 rand a share after the Biden administration warned that the tobacco firms could be forced to reduce the nicotine content in their products to levels they deem non-addictive. Sassel was down 10 rand to 225 rand a share on the back of weaker oil prices. PSG th- fell three and a quarter percent to 68 rand a share as the company released its year-end results, with investors not flinching despite the sum of the parts calculation being over 100 rand a share. Brian Joffe's brainchild, Long for Life, bucked the trend on the day, surging seven and a half percent to four rand twenty after announcing an upbeat trading statement. And lastly, Dogecoin's market value now exceeds the market capitalization of all of South Africa's listed banks combined. In the in the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies, to fourteen rand twenty eight to the dollar, nineteen rand ninety one to the sterling, and seventeen rand twenty to the euro. Gold is flat at one thousand seven hundred and seventy four dollars an ounce. Brent crude is low at sixty six dollars a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back a shade under eight hundred thousand rand a bitcoin. Just unpack that Dogecoin story. I thought it was a joke. I told you that investors are. Leaving Bitcoin into more investment-grade cryptocurrencies such as Dogecoin, it's sector rotation. <laughs> P. 
Peter, are you a Doge? Are you following Elon Musk into Dogecoin, or <laughs> he just mentions I, it and I it goes up? I heard Dogecoin today for the first time, so no, I haven't had the opportunity to sell my Bitcoin and buy Dogecoin yet. But market cap of all South Africa's banks combined. Stephen Nathan, doesn't that make you feel a little bit uh, jaundiced? Uh, at least, either that our our banks are underpriced, or that you know they're the same value as a as a coin that that is supposedly named after a dog. Yeah, you know, I think as Pitt said, there's something happening in the US that we're not part of. You know, there's a the interest rates basically they're giving money away for free. You can raise as much money as you want and make as much money as you want. So, you know, there's a there's an enormous financial party going on that we're not part of. But you know, my 16 year old son Sam is uh, he's on uh, finance and he's making a lot of money and he thinks I'm a complete idiot because I don't know anything about <laughs> cryptocurrency. So, you know, if you want a recommendation from him, if it was up to him, uh, he would say he should rather be on the show than me. Well, well uh, they did that on Bloomberg a while ago where they had one of the uh, market commentators and his son. And it was interesting because he gave his son uh, a challenge. And his son said, well, now you'll double his money this week <laughs> and the week thereafter and the week thereafter. I mean, these are, these are just returns that, uh, that are taken for granted now by the bulletproof youth. Uh, but, of course, don't tend to be sustainable in the long term. As you say, a party's going on. Just a quick uh, response from the two of you. Are we going to be part of the hangover when it finally does come? Stephen? I, I, I would uh, – sorry. Pete? No, carry well, on, Pete. I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, that, 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 that old cliche, when the U.S. sneezes, uh, you, know, you know, the world gets a cold and certainly emerging markets. So, you know, to some extent, we have benefited. You know, the currency has benefited. We're able to reduce interest rates, you know, to record lows in South Africa. Uh, and the stock market has had a bit of a rally, albeit off a low base. So, so we've had some benefit, but nowhere near the benefit. But certainly, I think that uh, you know, when things, uh, if interest rates, well, when they rise and when the US comes off the boil, uh, you're probably going to see us uh, suffer quite a bit with capital outflows and pressure on on the currency. So, I think we will be impacted. But I'd be I'd be interested to hear Pitt's view. Quick one, Pitt. Yeah. I- I think we will be impacted, but in, at this party, we're in the kitchen, and there's a lot less alcohol around the kitchen than there is out there in the living room right now. So uh, we will be impacted, but I, I don't think as much as some other places. You'll always find him in the kitchen at parties. This market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Thanks, guys, for the contributions tonight. We'll be back again tomorrow, 5.30, same time, same place, from the Biz News team. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.